This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card this week is Bob Stanley, card 573. Bob Stanley, pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. All right, excellent, Bob Stanley. Looking forward to this one. But before we get to that breaking news that has to do with the Chicago White Sox, unfortunately, the White Sox falling to the Astros in the playoffs. We're sad about that and sad for you about that. But even bigger story that happened during that series has been all over baseball Twitter and all over the baseball world. And that was a guy from Barstool Sports confronting actor John Cusack at game three of the White Sox-Astros game and basically berating him for appearing at the game in White Sox garb and claiming that he should not be both a Cubs and White Sox fan, that he was not a true fan, uh, that he hadn't suffered along with other White Sox fans. Cusack does not cover himself in glory in this clip and in the ensuing Twitter spat with Barstool Sports and everyone else. He then questions the Barstool guy's fandom himself. It leads to all sorts of fracas, tomfoolery, and shenanigans. So former guest and baseball PhD Clayton Truder Raise the question, did anyone actually even think about the Cubs and White Sox having a rivalry before interleague play began? My impression is no, but curious for your insights. And fan of the show, at Tim Briggs here, said, you guys are uniquely qualified to weigh in on this controversy. So I thought what we would do in a bit of a break of format is to have... RBI baseball correspondent and lifelong Cubs fan, Brian, join us on the show early to help us talk about the Cubs and White Sox rivalry growing up. So, Brian, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here and happy to talk about this. We'll also have you back later to talk about Bob Stanley and RBI baseball. But, David, why don't you start? What did you think when you saw this controversy? So I was at this game on on Sunday where the White Sox had a amazing come from behind victory over the Astros. It didn't save their season, but it it was one of the greatest sporting events that I've ever attended in my life. It was an amazing atmosphere, but also there was an element of what I think is some of the worst White Sox fandom, which is shouting about the Cubs while you're at a White Sox game that the Cubs are not participating in. (laughs) I know alcohol had something to do with this, but it also is, I think, a distinctly White Sox fan thing that I have not experienced at Wrigley Field. And Brian, you and I have gone to a Cubs Sox game at Comiskey together. And, and we had a good time. I think maybe we weren't out in the bleachers. I've gone to a Cubs Sox game at Wrigley Field and felt no ill effects. Then again, I was surrounded by 15 of my very best friends who are all Cubs fans. So I you know, was not afraid that somebody was going to start a fight with me. But I do think that I was immediately reminded of what is one of my favorite scenes from Mad Men, which is where the young upstart associate confronts Don Draper in in the elevator, and Don Draper's response to him is, I don't think about you at all. And (laughs) I think that Cubs fans generally 
unless they're confronted by idiot Sox fans, just generally like they have their own things going on. They're used to outsiders coming into their stadium to cheer for whatever team, people from Iowa, Nebraska, wherever, come to Wrigley Field and cheer for the Cubs. And you, there's not the barrier to entry, whereas on the south side, when you're getting 10,000 fans in the stadium, you can kind of pick out, like, oh, okay, I, I actually recognize all of these people. And then you see John Cusack and you're like, wait a minute. You're not George Went, the only White Sox fan celebrity. You're not Barack Obama. <laughs> Former Illinois Governor Pat Quinn was a White Sox season <laughs> ticket holder, let's not forget. But. Yes. Or uh, I think Mr. T. You're not Mr. T. Get out of here. Uh, so I, I, I tried not to get into this because, like, I think there, it is fun to have a rivalry when both teams are doing well, particularly when they're playing each other. But for so long, both teams were bad. Right in such long stretches of futility that there was no rivalry. A rivalry is when one team might actually beat the other or play games that matter. So I think it matters more to people, to White Sox fans. And part of that is we don't have much. The South side is different from the North side. And a lot of this has to do with gentrification. A lot of this has to do with segregation and white flight from the South side where you have the South side hollowing out you have a stadium that is not Wrigley Field that for the last 30 years has been kind of an embarrassment that they've made much better, but when it was built was just a huge mistake. So you have Sox fans seeing the Cubs get national attention. ESPN forgets that the White Sox won a World Series every once in a while, and then Sox fans get up in arms. And it just is a reminder of the like the, the prettier, shinier thing up north and White Sox fans kind of wear that, wear grittiness on their sleeve, whether it's earned or not, and are easily offended and thin-skinned. To that end, I think there is a rivalry. I think it is something where there's a dynamic between the two franchises, even if they don't share the same league, that is defined and there's a relationship between those fans. And what it reminds me of, for um, some of our national listeners may be able to relate to this better, I moved to New York City in the year 2000. And the Boston Red Sox had not won a World Series since 1918 at that point in time. I went to some games at Fenway Park. It was an easy jaunt three or four hours away using the wonderful buses from Chinatown. I was at a Red Sox game once in September, and the team wasn't contending. And they started a Jeter sucks chant in the stands. And I was completely confused by this. I was just like, the, the Yankees aren't here. They're not playing. And there was a sense <laughs> on behalf of Red Sox fans that New York City was the prettier, shinier thing. The Yankees were on a tremendous run of winning World Series at that point. They were very successful. The Cubs hadn't been successful, and I don't think that's what's governing the dynamic that might exist between the Cubs fans and the, and the White Sox fans. But that's kind of what it reminded me of. The, the Red Sox fans had a bit of chip on their shoulder because they weren't getting the same attention as the Yankees were. While I grew up as a Cubs fan, I did attend you know games at both stadiums growing up, and, and that was uh, fun. And I would just as easily, maybe not just as easily, but I would go to White Sox games, and I would go to, go to Cubs games. And I think for me, it was my fandom came into focus when I moved away from Chicago. And then all of a sudden, the teams that you grew up watching are part of your identity, because that's what people in that place then associate with you. And I say that because in thinking about John Cusack in this situation, I think I can kind of relate to him. Sure, he might be a Cubs fan, but he's a Chicagoan first and foremost. And the Chicago White Sox are part of his identity as being a Chicagoan. 
And he's probably spent the last 30 or 40 years of his life in Hollywood being associated with Chicago, being kind of a flag bearer for Chicago. So to me, that makes it totally justified that he'd say, look, this team is part of my childhood too. It might not be the first team that I cheer for, but I want to support them because I want to support my city. The second part of this I'd add is in that clip, the gentleman from Barstool, and, and just for the record, if I'm forced to choose between Barstool and John Cusack, even if John Cusack didn't give the best account of himself, in most cases, I'm going to go with John Cusack or any similar 80s star. That... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Have we talked about John Cusack's recent work where he kind of delves into Nicolas Cage territory? <laughs> <laughs> you say this is a bad thing? <laughs> you know, he's no Dean Cameron, but, but I will say that John Cusack from that period is someone who I think uh, a lot of us grew up with and, and kind of associated with some good movies. Look, the guy says part of being a fan is suffering. The Chicago teams have not been terribly successful across the course of the last 40 years. John Cusack was born in 1966. The Chicago White Sox won the World Series in 2005. He was 39 years old at that point. Then the Cubs won again in 2016, so he's 50 years old at that point. It's not like he's seeing championships and cherry-picking between these two wonderfully <laughs> successful franchises. He's going through suffering cheering for both squads. I think these are very good points. One thing that I want to bring this back to, just from a pop culture standpoint, is that in 1988, John Cusack played a Chicago White Sox player in the movie Eight Men Out. So the idea that he is not qualified to go to a White Sox game and cheer for the White Sox is utterly ridiculous. I think... While we address some of this, we didn't really talk about Clayton's question, which was prior to interleague play, there isn't a place that has teams with as long-standing traditions in the same city as Chicago has. There is a song called the Southside Irish. There's a line in there that says, our favorite baseball club is the Go-Go White Sox and whoever plays the Cubs. And this is prior to, this is probably back in the 80s or, or before, and that sentiment has been held by a lot of White Sox fans for a long time. For me personally, and maybe I'm making like a, a terrible admission here of pettiness, when the Cubs in 2003 lost in the NLCS, there was a bit of a weight off the shoulders that the Cubs would not win the World Series before the White Sox did. It wasn't that I was rooting against them, but I was dreading the gloating from Cub fan friends. And, and at the time I lived with a Cubs fan, my roommate was a huge Cubs fan, was outside of the stadium at NLCS Game 6. It was a bit of a relief that I wouldn't get the, the gloating from Cubs fans. And then in 2005, it was a, well, that happened. Now I'm happy for you guys, whatever happens. I know that for me as a Cubs fan, when the White Sox won in 2005, my first reaction was to be happy for my friends who had been waiting for this moment and who, you know, you just saw the joy on their faces and you said, look, if it can't be us, then better them than somebody who I have no feeling about. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap it up, gentlemen. Thank you very much uh, for the discussion. Now let's go on to Bob Stanley and to card 573. And David, why did we choose Bob Stanley this week? This was a recommendation from listener Jay who sent a suggestion on Facebook, and he sent it back in May. So sorry if it takes me forever to get to these recommendations. We got 26 teams, and we try to rotate and sometimes do a bad job. I don't know <laughs> if we've had a Red Sox player in a while, but Jay's suggestion of Bob Stanley, he said he had an interesting career, 
as a rubber-armed reliever for the Sox, worked as a closer, set up, long relief, and spot starter, and he was on the mound during the fateful World Series Game 6 in 1986. And interestingly, in this set, there's two guys named Robert Stanley. The other is the Rangers catcher who went by Mike Stanley, but his actual name is Robert Stanley. But no, this is the Bob Stanley of the Boston Red Sox, one of the most accomplished players from Maine, and he played an unfortunate role in that 1986 World Series, but is well-remembered by the Red Sox fans and RBI baseball fans. So let's look at the front of the card of 573, and here we have pretty unusual pose. We have Bob Stanley looking like this is taken from the slightly behind profile. So you kind of get a bit of a butt shot of Bob Stanley here. And it's from the knees up. Bob Stanley was a starting pitcher in 1987. So maybe this is a pregame warm-up along the side. And you can see a lot of fans back there in the, in the stands. A lot of aviator shades. I think this is in Detroit. If you look at that guy who looks like Dennis Eckersley right by Bob's glove. Yeah. That's a Detroit Tigers hat. Yeah. Some good mustaches. And on the 1988 Tops blog, shout out to Andy from High Heat Stats, he pointed out on this card's page, what's that guy doing below Bob's glove? Is he eating a popsicle? Let's see. I'm zooming in here. Gonna z- I've Enhance. pulled this up. Pull this up on the Jumbotron, and I'm enhancing at will. It does look like he is eating an ice cream sandwich or something with a foil wrapper. He's got a hat on that I cannot tell uh, the logo on. It looks like maybe he's in witness protection or he's (laughs) a detective. Yeah, boy, there are a lot of aviator sunglasses. Everyone is wearing <laughs> aviator sunglasses in this shot. It's really it's a striking. bright, sunny day in Detroit. It really is. <laughs> Bob Good. looks kind of goofy in this picture. His hair is looking voluminous. He was a large man. One of his nicknames was Bigfoot. <laughs> his other nickname was The Steamer, as mm, in the Stanley, the Stanley Steamer. Steamer. So either named for the carpet cleaning company or the brand of steam-powered vehicles that went out of business in 1924. Take your pick. But a large man, and this uniform is doing him no favors. Yeah, it doesn't look, uh, it's not very fashionable on him. It's the straight-up gray red socks with navy cap and navy letters. It's very boring. Looking at the back of 573, Bob Stanley, 6'4", 229, right-handed thrower and batter, although I don't know how much batting he did in his career as an American League reliever. Drafted by the Red Sox in January 1974. Born November 10th, 1954 in Portland, Maine, with a home in Wenham, Massachusetts. Matt, I love Portland, Maine. It's a great place to visit. Lobsters, cobblestone streets, lighthouses. We had a delicious brunch and heard a a very New England-accented grandpa talking about the virtues of marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Portland, Maine, it's a great place. But um, Bob, I don't know why that's one of my best memories of Portland, Maine. It was this, he was talking with his granddaughter about (laughs) how much he enjoyed different kinds of weed. (laughs) Leaving that in. 
Bob's one of the best players from Maine, but he left the state at age two. His Sabre bio is by Will Anderson, and Will wrote a book all about baseball in Maine called Was Baseball Really Invented in Maine? So many of the Sabre bios about players from Maine are taken from Will Anderson's work in this book, including Bob Stanley's. There's only 78 players on Baseball Reference who were born in Maine, and Bob is the only one who ever made an all-star team. However, at age two, he moved to New Jersey, to Kearney, New Jersey. And he said that this move to New Jersey gave him a better chance to play baseball because Maine had a limited baseball season. He would still go back and visit family in Maine and spend his summers lobstering. He also said something that helped his baseball career was that he was held back in second grade. An unexpected benefit of this was that when he got to high school, there were better players a year ahead of him. So because he was held back, he's relegated to playing the outfield. And then his senior year, all of these better players who were all the pitchers move along to college and Bob gets his shot. He went 10-1 and and was an All-State pitcher and shortstop. According to his 1987 Topps card, he had a perfect game in the New Jersey State Tournament. So a great senior season that gets him noticed by pro scouts. He's drafted in the ninth round by the Dodgers. But the Dodgers didn't make him a good enough offer, so he didn't sign. He was then drafted in the secondary draft in January. He was the number one pick by the Red Sox, which seems like a, a big deal. But these are less prestigious players than the normal June draft. Of the 24 players in the first round of that special draft, only four made the majors compared to the June draft where you have MVPs in that first round. He's initially assigned to Class A Winter Haven, but he didn't really impress there, so he was sent to also A-ball Elmira. At that point, he was known as a hard thrower and working on his curveball, but was a work in progress. The first fun fact on the card is that he led the New York Penn League with 15 games started in 1974. Doesn't seem like a very fun fact. Yeah, the, the 1987 fun fact was way more fun about his high school tournament performance. That season, he went 6-6 six and six with a 4.60 ERA. There were, at this point, I think three levels of A-ball, low, middle, and high A-ball, and he was at the lowest level. The next year, he got another chance at Winter Haven, His record did not properly reflect the quality of his pitching. He was developing a sinker ball that was very effective, even if his teammates were not very effective. Bob said, I was 0-6 before that team even got a run for me. (laughs) This team was 20 games under 500, outscored by their opponents by 90 runs. So Bob had a 2.93 ERA with 10 complete games, and he was 5-17. Oh, man. So at least somebody was noticing the quality of his pitching, regardless of the quality of his team, and he earned a spot in Double A in 1976. Yeah, Double A Bristol leads to a better fun fact. This is he's tied for the Eastern League lead with 27 starts in 1976. He was better that year and had some more support. The team was over 500. Bob was well over 500 as well with a 15 and 9 record and a 2.66 ERA. He was walking more players than he struck out considering his 2.66 ERA is kind of impressive. He kept the ball on the ground, so getting a lot of double plays. He only gave up eight home runs in 186 innings. And going into spring training, he's 22 years old in 1977. He'll probably need a year in AAA, right? Well, apparently not. Uh, Don Zimmer was so impressed that he included Bob as a last man in his 10-man pitching staff. 
and he ends up joining the team in 1977. Don Zimmer is telling reporters he's going to bring Bob up to the big leagues, but don't tell him because Zimmer wants to break the good news. So apparently Don Zimmer tells Bob Stanley, you're, you're coming to the big leagues. Bob Ryan sees Stanley at a bar later on and offers to buy him a beer. Bob Stanley, who is a very normal guy, says, what am I going to do with $20,000 a year? And he was <laughs> in a daze and he didn't know what he was going to do with all that money. He was, he was rich now. The bigger question was what role would he end up playing for Boston? And the answer is all of them. He was a starter, middle reliever, short reliever, whatever Zimmer needed. That first year, he had 13 starts, 28 relief appearances, an 8-7 and seven record, and a 3.99 ERA, including three complete games, one shutout, and three saves. So a lot of work for his rookie year. The Red Sox were pretty good this year. They won 97 games, but they were in a tie with Baltimore for second in the AL East. The Yankees would win the division and go on to win the World Series. 1978, a bigger year for him and a bigger year for the Red Sox. They would win 99 games. Boston fans maybe don't remember it so fondly. This Red Sox team had been up 10 games in the AL East at one point and ended up in a tie with the Yankees on the final day of the season. Bob Stanley has a fantastic season, and he was less of a Swiss Army knife this year. He only had three starts, but he had a 15-2 and record with a 2.6 ERA. He's got 10 saves, 141 innings. His ERA plus was 160. He even got some MVP and Cy Young votes that year. But because both the Yankees uh, and Red Sox ended up 99 and, what is that, 63. So they have a tiebreaker game, the first tiebreaker game since 1948. Mike Torres gives up a three-run homer to Bucky Dent. Red Sox are down 3-2, to two, and what happens next? Mike Torres walks Mickey Rivers, gets pulled for Bob Stanley, and Stanley gives up a double to Thurman Munson to go down 4-2. to two. He gets one out to end the inning. The next inning, the first batter is Reggie Jackson, who hits a home run. It's 5-2. to two. Bob gets pulled. And that would be the deciding run as the Red Sox would lose 5-4. to four. The Yankees would go on to win the ALCS and the World Series over the Dodgers. So an unfortunate season, unfortunate end to Bob Stanley's great 1978 season. 1979, the team is coming apart. They lose a couple of starters, and Don Zimmer decides to take Stanley out of the bullpen and put him into the starting rotation. And it pays off. The team wins 91 games, and Bob ends up making his first All-Star game. He went 16-12 and 12 with a 3.98 ERA. He pitched in 40 games, 30 of them were starts, and he had four shutouts, which was second in the American League. 1980 and 81, he had the same record in both seasons of 10 and 8. 1980, kind of strange, pitched in 52 <laughs> games. He started 17 games and saved 14 games. He's only one of six players in baseball history to have 15 or more starts in a season and 14 or more saves in a season. Yeah, so as Jay said, we have a rubber-armed reliever here. He's closing games out. He's pitching complete games. He had 175 innings pitched. He's doing everything that the Red Sox need. It's really an interesting season and a very unique season. 1981, he was exclusively used out of the bullpen, so he only got one start that year. His ERA was up a little bit, and he wasn't closing games as much. And so because it was the strike year, this is the first year that he's under 100 innings pitched. 
1982, he is a workhorse yet again. He sets the American League record for most relief innings pitch with 168 and a third innings. He did this in only 48 games. So he was a, a long reliever and to the extreme. Yeah, he's a, a long reliever, but a long closer. The record holder for the most major league innings pitched by a reliever, that's Mike Marshall. He threw 208 innings in relief. That was 106 games. Bob's averaging three, almost four innings per appearance. He got 14 saves. 11 of them were three or four inning saves. These are not gimmies. He was also second in the American League in ERA after Rick Sutcliffe. Bob claims that he was robbed. He said there was a game in Oakland where the umpire called a home run on a ball that was, in his mind, 10 feet foul. And that was a three-run homer, and it cost him the ERA title. But that would have been an amazing feat for him as a relief pitcher to win the ERA title, pitching enough innings to even qualify for it. He ended up ninth in saves, eighth in pitching wins above replacement, and he led the AL with a 140 ERA+. Again, shows up on some awards ballots in the Cy Young and MVP. Another fantastic year. 1983, he was more of a regular closer, so not as many innings uh, pitched, only 145 innings with 64 games. Makes his second and final All-Star game. So along with that All-Star game, he did something that was very odd on May 22nd. Previous 1988 top subject, John Tudor, starts this game against the Twins, gives up a few runs, and gets pulled in the third inning. Bob Stanley comes in in the third inning and pitches through the 12th. (laughs) He gives up one run in 10 innings of relief work. I believe this is the last time in baseball that you have a pitcher throw 10 innings of relief. Uh, I mean, of course, nobody throws 10 innings now, ever. And a fun note here, the Twins end up winning it in the 13th inning after Bob is pulled for Luis Aponte. And Luis Aponte was the pitcher who Mike Smithson gave a ride home during the longest ever baseball game, whose wife then refused to accept that the game was still going on and kicked him out. Can't believe that Luis Aponte has ended up with two references in the 1988 Tops podcast, a set that he is not a part of, but good job, Luis. So 33 saves that year, second most in the AL, sets a Red Sox record, although that's since been broken, and ends up with an 8-10 and 10 record. He tied another record that year, David, the major league record with 14 blown saves. And maybe that is a little bit misleading because he did have a really good season. He had an ERA plus of 153, which is the third highest among AL pitchers with more than 100 innings. But Red Sox fans got frustrated with him because of some inconsistencies, and they would boo him. Bob joked with his friends that his actual name was Lou Stanley, And they were just chanting, Lou, Lou, (laughs) which is very much a Hans Molman. I was saying Boo Earns. Well, regardless of this fan frustration, it's another good stat line and a 4.0 war for Bob Stanley. 84 and 85, more typical numbers and seasons for, for Stanley in relief. Going up to 1986, the key year that we know about with Bob Stanley. This was not his best year, David. Only 16 saves and a 4.37 ERA. This is the first time in his career that his ERA was over four. But he did get a chance to play in the playoffs for the first time in his career. In the ALCS, he wasn't great. He gave up four runs in five and two-thirds of innings. But the Red Sox defeated the Angels to set up a World Series with the Mets. 
In that World Series, Bob had five appearances. He got a save in Game 2, pitched in Game 3 and 4 losses without giving up a run. In fact, in those five games, he didn't register a single earned run. But that doesn't tell the whole story, because Bob was part of that iconic moment in Game 6, the Red Sox on the brink of victory. Bob was part of a moment that Red Sox fans won't ever forget. The Red Sox are up 3-2 to two in the 7th inning. Calvin Schiraldi gives up the tying run in the 8th, and then remains in the game. The Sox go up by two runs in the top of the 10th, and Schiraldi is still on the mound. He records a couple easy outs. The Red Sox are one out away from victory. Gary Carter singles, Kevin Mitchell singles, Ray Knight goes down 0-2 in the count, they're one strike away, and he singles to score a run. At that point, Schiraldi is pulled and Bob Stanley is put in. He gets Mookie Wilson to 2-2, two and two. again, one strike away from winning the World Series, and Mookie fouls off a few pitches, and at this point, we should turn this over to the professionals. Tension mount some more with two out in the 10th. 5 4 Red Sox. Ray Knight at first. Kevin Mitchell at third. Two and two to Mookie Wilson. And it's going to go to the backstop. Here comes Mitchell to score the tying run. And Ray Knight is at second base. Rich Gedman set up outside. And Bob Stanley threw the ball inside, and it bounced off the tip of Rich Gedman's glove. So it's unfortunate. It looked like a catchable ball for Gedman, but he was set up so far outside that it took. he didn't move his whole body over. He just moved his glove to try to catch it, and he was unable to block the ball. Kevin Mitchell scores. Also importantly, now the count is 3-2. and two. So Knight is going to be running on this pitch, and let's take it back to Vince Scully. Can you believe this ball game at Shea? Oh, brother. So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. We should have had a trigger warning here for Red Sox fans. Of course, Bill Buckner, the ball goes between his legs. Ray Knight, running from second, scores to win the game, win game six. Bob would pitch again in game seven, and the Mets would win the World Series. Buckner takes the blame for this loss and becomes the GOAT. But the pitchers, Calvin Schiraldi gave up a couple hits. Bob Stanley was a good ground ball pitcher. But unfortunately, that wild pitch and then the error, he got the ground ball he needed, and that led to the to the error and to the game-winning run. So Bob is remembered as a GOAT by some Red Sox fans as well. The ultimate low light of Bob Stanley's career, but on the bright side, David, this appearance in the playoffs earned the Red Sox and Bob Stanley a spot in RBI baseball. So let's go back to Brian in the RBI baseball corner. And we're back in the RBI baseball corner. And Brian, welcome back to the show. 
Uh, we're here to talk about Bob Stanley and the Red Sox. Thanks for having me. I believe the Red Sox are probably one of the two teams that people play with most often. The other one being the Detroit Tigers. They're a very good team in RBI baseball. They're never my personal team to favor to play with. I'm always a Tigers guy. But I have a lot of friends where that's the first team that they go to is the Red Sox. They are one of the best teams. They have kind of odd player attributes and stats. So, for instance, Tony Armas is part of the team, and he was part of the 86 Red Sox. But he had 11 homers in 1986, and he's in the game shown as having 43 home runs. And he has power <laughs> stats that are kind of consistent with him being this gigantic home run hitter. Similarly, you know, they take teams that are the playoff teams from 86 and 87 in RBI baseball. So it's the 86 Red Sox. They have integrity there from a roster standpoint, by and large. But this team in the game has Ellis Burks on it. And Ellis Burks was not part of the 86 Red Sox. He came up and had a huge rookie season in 1987, but he wasn't part of the team that was captured in the game. So it kind of feels like the game developers might have been Red Sox fans to uh, load up the team with a really good Tony Armas and a really good Ellis Burks. In terms of the teams itself, the real story with the Red Sox is right-handed power bats. Jim Rice, Don Baylor, Dwight Evans, Rich Gedman, just a ton of power. Uh, plus, they have a bit of a line drive hitter and a lefty in Wade Boggs. In terms of lefties, you'd look at the lineup and you say, well, they got three lefties, but two of them need to be swapped out. And you bring in stars off the bench like Tony Armas, Ellis Burks, and Dave Henderson, and you're left with a lineup that has only one lefty in it. They have the best bench in the game, but ultimately you're using most of those bench in your starting lineup, and you can kind of get this team out with a pretty good righty starter, even if it's not on a great overall team, like the Mets with Dwight Gooden or like the San Francisco starting pitchers. Red Sox pitching is okay. Roger Clemens is pretty good. He's probably their best pitcher, but he's not Roger Clemens. You know, He's not the legendary pitcher where he's a head and shoulders above other pitchers in this game. It's interesting, Bob Stanley might actually be their second best pitcher. And because of the right-handedness of their pitching staff, you can also get to them with a pretty good lefty-heavy lineup uh, like Detroit is. How about Bob Stanley himself as a reliever? So Bob Stanley is uh, one of the two relief pitchers for the Boston Red Sox in RBI baseball. Um, He has standard endurance, which is kind of disappointing because this is a guy who threw over 310 innings in back-to-back seasons without a single start. So he clearly would have better endurance in real life than he has in the game. He has a pretty good curve, especially a curve away to a righty, but inside to a lefty. His regular pitch is the fifth slowest, but that's not necessarily a detriment. What you really want is a differential between your fastball and your curveball. So having a low regular pitch speed can actually be pretty helpful because then you can use the fastball as a change of pace. He's kind of just a guy. Um, he's fine. His game, his ERA in the game is shown as 1.81. That certainly doesn't match with reality. His actual ERA in 1986 was 4.37. In terms of what he is as a player, he's probably somewhere in between there. He's a pretty good reliever. But most importantly, he was featured in the amazing recreation of Game 6 of the 1986 World Series, the RBI baseball version of that Game 6 that's found on YouTube. This is amazing. We have this in our show notes. It's set to the soundtrack of Vin Scully's actual call of the game, which I believe was an NBC at that time. I remember that game like it was yesterday. I was nine years old at a friend's birthday party. They had a birthday cake that had both the Red Sox side of it and the Mets side of it. And we were all watching the game. And I was playing table tennis in the basement with a friend as the inning played out. And they've recreated all of this through RBI Baseball in a clip on YouTube. Bob Stanley and Calvin Trolled are the two relievers. 
It features the famed Bill Buckner error through the doink error that exists in RBI baseball. It's something that everybody's going to check out. It is an amazing video, truly, uh, and an amazing creation uh, to replicate that that famous inning of baseball uh, through RBI baseball. But bottom line, should you play Bob Stanley? Yes, he's better in the game than he is in Game 6 of the 86 World Series. Although if you're choosing between him and Schiraldi, I guess neither of them uh, necessarily gave the best account of themselves in that game. But he's definitely the first reliever in after Clemens. He's even better than Bruce Hurst, who's one of the two starting pitchers. So since he's the second best pitcher on the Red Sox, I think you definitely play Bob Stanley. All right. Thanks, Brian. It was a famous inning from a famous game, and this is a famous segment. So we're glad to have you back again. So thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Sounds great. Always happy to be here. Looking at 1987, the final row on this card, Bob goes back into the starting rotation for the first time since 1980. Pretty rough season, 4-15 and 15 with a 5.01 ERA. In 1988, he gets back to the pen, which is probably a good thing. His performance showed that he was 6-4 and four in 88 with a ERA plus back over 100 of an ERA plus of 130. More middle relief in 88. He got to pitch in the playoffs again, but it didn't go well. The Red Sox were swept by the A's. Bob gave up one run and two short appearances against the A's. 1989, we're on the decline. He's not pitching very well. It was a 5-2 and two record, but 4.88 ERA and four saves. And after that season, he ends up retiring as the Red Sox all-time save leader. And I asked friend of the show, David J., his memories of Bob Stanley. David told me that he was at Bob Stanley's last game and got on TV with a sign that said, 13 years, never dull. (laughs) (laughs) And in those 13 seasons, Bob put up pretty good numbers. 115 wins, 132 saves in 637 games. That makes him the Red Sox all-time leader in appearances, eighth in wins, and second in saves. He is sixth in innings pitched, which is pretty amazing because he only started 85 games. All the guys ahead of him started over 200 games for the Red Sox. David, closing the book on Stanley's career here, he really had a great stretch from 1977 to 1985. And among all pitchers with 200 or more appearances, he had the 17th highest ERA plus with 127, ahead of Steve Carlton, Raleigh Fingers, Burt Blylevin, and Rick Rushel. And performing that well in all kinds of scenarios, from closing to starting to middle relief, it's really impressive, his versatility. He was inducted into the Red Sox Hall of Fame in the year 2000. What about in retirement? Bob and his wife, Joan, had three children, and they settled down in Massachusetts. He went into coaching. He was in the Mets and Giants organizations, later in the Blue Jays organizations at the AAA level, as well as spending some time with the Blue Jays Major League team as a bullpen coach. A couple years back, he retired from coaching. He still shows up at Red Sox events, including this year, throwing out the first pitch at a Woo Sox game to Rich Gedman. And hopefully Gedman was set up properly this time. So David, now that we've taken a closer look at at Bob, to be honest, he's not a player I knew much about. So now having looked into him more, uh, what do we think about him? I'm in the same boat. I would not have known who was on the mound in that 86 game six. But we both know Bill Buckner. And Buckner took the brunt of that 1986 blame. 
Some fans and reporters to this day blame John McNamara and Bob Stanley for the loss, not Bill Buckner. And it's unfortunate that Bob was on the mound, but he does bear some of the responsibility. He was great for the Red Sox for certain stretches of his career. By 1986, his career was on the downslide, and that World Series performance kind of kind of showed that. To Bob's credit, he said, I love the Boston fans and I understand them. He got it. He gets it. He knew the weight that that loss held for Red Sox fans. And I think it's because he was one of them, being from Maine. What I didn't expect to find after looking at this career was some really amazing stories about Bob's humanity and this one anecdote. There's something called the Jimmy Fund. And the Jimmy Fund is benefits the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, which helps childhood cancer patients. It was named after a 12-year-old who had cancer. And in 1948, they set up this program where this Jimmy, it was an assumed name so that they could protect his identity, would meet his favorite players from the Boston Braves, and they would surprise him in his hospital room. And it was played over the radio, and then they, they would solicit donations to help Jimmy get his own TV set so that he could watch his team play. And they collected $200,000 in 1948 for this. And it was hugely successful. And over the years, has raised millions upon millions of dollars for childhood cancer research. Red Sox players, all the big names are involved in fundraising. And Bob Stanley, you and I both just kind of said, like, is Bob Stanley a big name? Well, there's an amazing story about how big of a name he is with the Jimmy Fund. Bill Littlefield, who was with Boston's NPR station, was talking with Ken Coleman. And Ken Coleman was a longtime Boston radio, TV, play-by-play man. Littlefield tells Coleman this story. He said that after the 1986 World Series, this Red Sox fan is telling him that he got rid of all of his Stanley hand tools and threw away all of his screwdrivers, his Stanley files, etc. Ken Coleman says he will not tolerate a bad word said about Bob Stanley. Coleman, for years, worked with the Jimmy Fund. He was the guy who, when there was a kid who was sick in the hospital, who wanted a ball player to visit him, Ken Coleman would call. He would call a ball player. He said Bob Stanley never said no. All Bob said was what room number, what time, and what's the kid's name. And one of Bob's visits was with a 10-year-old patient who was depressed. He'd stopped communicating with his friends and family. Bob goes to visit. He brings a bat, a ball, and his jersey And it was the jersey that he wore when he set the Red Sox career saves record. He signs it, spends two hours with the kid, and he opens up. The boy opens up. He starts talking with his friends. His mother said it was a dream come true. And it was a major part of what helped him through the day, thinking about spending time with Bob Stanley and the amount of time that Bob would spend with him. Sadly, that boy's condition worsened, and he passed away several months later. His request was that he be buried in Bob Stanley's number 46 jersey. And I thought that 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 anecdote just about Bob Stanley never saying no was also fitting for his career. Whatever a manager asked him to do, Bob said, all right, I'll be a starter. All right, I'll pitch four innings. All right, I'll pitch 10 innings in relief. But also, I will make every hospital visit (laughs) to a sick kid and how much that means to those children. In an unfortunate twist, a few years later, Bob's son, Kyle, had a, a tumor in his sinus cavity. And this was a condition similar to the one that impacted that, that child who passed away a few years prior. 
and Bob and Joan found themselves in the situation that so many parents at the Farber Institute were in. They weren't celebrity visitors anymore. And Kyle went through chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, and thankfully he recovered. And he still goes with Bob to raise money. And they play in golf tournaments and they raise money together, Bob and Kyle, for the Dana-Farber Institute. Bob and Joan were given the Yawkey Award, which is the fund's highest honor for their commitment to the Jimmy Fund. And regardless of his the play in 1986, we like to talk about the humanity of players, and I'll remember Bob Stanley as what seems like a fantastic guy. Yeah, David, it's a it's a great story because we started this episode, you know, talking about kind of the worst <laughs> parts of sports fandom and the petty kind of divisiveness that that comes up as as a part of being fans, and it really is the antidote to that kind of cynicism and the antidote to the divisiveness that we see in sports and politics in a lot of our ways. The antidote is kindness. The antidote is doing acts of kindness. And I feel like this show, we've, we, we've been able to do that, to go from the worst kind of stupid fight on Twitter to someone who is selflessly doing kind acts for others and that just makes me feel better about the whole enterprise. So I'm I'm glad that we got there. So th- thank you for finding that. To your initial point there, part of what I have enjoyed about this podcast, and particularly over the last year, is that I didn't know a lot about some of these teams. I'm a White Sox fan. I'm, I suppose I'm supposed to like dislike the Twins or the Tigers. But through the course of this, We've talked about players who we have grown to appreciate and love for all of these teams. And we've connected with fans, both of our show or people who just check in because they're like, oh, a Red Sox player. Cool. And it it gives me something to root for because I'm like, well, Jay suggested Bob Stanley. Red Sox are playing tonight. I'm sure as heck not going to root for the Astros. Except I love Charlie Kerfeld. So maybe I will. Oh, but, yes. But, it, you know, it gives us something to pay attention to and some and to find some goodness in baseball and in professional sports. Yeah. So thank you, Jay, for the suggestion. And thank you to you at home for listening. We would love your requests. You can email us. Our email address is 1988topspodcast at gmail.com. And if you find yourself with a sudden urge to steam clean your carpet... We would love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.